Good evening. Well, it is a joy to be with you. If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to open to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. Um, or if you opt to use the Bible in the seat in front of you, it should be on page 865. Uh, the sermon title for this evening is A Tale of Three Fears. We're in Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. beginning at verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Verse 32. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with a great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Let's pray. Father, the Psalms say, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. I pray that the light of your word would drive darkness from the deepest crevices in our heart and rekindle our affections for you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, who is the light of the world. Amen. Take a second and think about the last time you were afraid. We all know intuitively there are different kinds of fear. Maybe you envisioned a giant spider in the bathroom. (laughs) Well, that's very different from the fear when you're speeding and you suddenly see a police car. Tonight in our passage, we will discover many characters fearing Christ, but experiencing three very different outcomes. But before we dive into the passage, let's set the stage to understand exactly what Jesus is teaching us here. Our chapter, chapter 8, is the culmination of Jesus' early phase of ministry and is preparing the disciples for their coming mission. After our chapter, if we fast forward to chapter 9, we find Jesus kicking off the next segment of his ministry, where he's going to send the disciples out in pairs to swarm the countryside proclaiming the gospel. So as we reverse back to our chapter in chapter 8, 
we begin to see that everything in chapter 8 is aimed at preparing the disciples for their coming mission. Now, in chapter 8, we have three stories in quick succession, back to back, that affirm to those disciples the total, complete, unstoppable power Jesus is sending with them on their mission. Number one, a fierce storm in the Sea of Galilee, Jesus calms it with word. Remember, disciples, I have total, complete sovereignty over nature. Immediately after that, number two, Jesus will, in our passage, uh, force thousands of demons to submit in abject terror. Yes, disciples, I have total supremacy over the spiritual realm. And in the next passage, Jesus will demonstrate his power over life itself by bringing back a young girl from the dead. Power over nature, power over the spiritual realm, power over life itself. Disciples, let that embolden you to go spread the gospel. By the end of these three quick stories, only one question remains. When confronted with the fearsome power of Jesus, what will your response be? What will your response be? The sermon title is A Tale of Three Fears. In our passage, we find that everyone confronted with Christ will fear his authority, but only the proper type of fear results in peace with God. A Tale of Three Fears. It's an allusion to Charles Dickens' book, A Tale of Two Cities. Perhaps you remember those famous opening lines. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. As we work through our outline of three kinds of fear, a tale of three fears, we will discover many similar ironic contrasts littering the passage. So as we dive into our text, we identify the first kind of fear among the legion of demons, and that's in verses 26 to 33. And this is the fear of spiteful rebellion. That's our first fear, a fear of spiteful rebellion. Picture picture this. Jesus and his disciples have just sailed across the Sea of Galilee, Um, They've just plowed through a storm. Jesus has calmed it with a word. They've just arrived on the eastern shoreline. This is Gentile country. Now, maybe the the disciples are thinking, you know, we've had enough excitement for the day after Jesus calmed the sea. But oh no, as soon as they reach shore, they go from a raging sea to a raging lunatic. As soon as Jesus steps ashore, a demon-possessed maniac storms out to meet them. And notice what happens immediately in verse 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. And again in verse 31, And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. So the demons are crying out, falling before Jesus in abject terror, and begging him not to command them to banish them forever. This is a very real, visceral fear. And they have good reason to fear. First, they recognized God has already promised a coming future judgment on them. The only question here is, is he going to send them, is he going to wait for the coming future judgment? Or is he going to send them straight to hell right now ahead of schedule? Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 8 clarifies this detail a little bit more with the detail that they're afraid he's going to banish them, quote, before the time. And secondly, they also have reason to fear because of what they've done to this man, a man who bears the image of God. In verse 27, we learn the man was originally from the city. 
Ah, but now the demons have forced him to live among the tombs with those piles of lifeless bones reflecting his lifeless soul. At the end of verse 29, we see that many times the townspeople tried to fix this problem with phys- by physically restraining his body with chains and shackles. But bodily restraints mean nothing to a heart of raging demons. Inevitably, he would break free and the demons would drive him into the desolation of the desert. So yes, these demons have been torturing not only this man, but the entire town for years. Yes, these demons have very good reasons to fear a king who has already promised their doom. They're no match for God, despite their numbers. And yes, if we look in the text, they are numerous. In verse 30, Jesus asks, What is your name? And they reply, Legion, for we are many. Now, legion is a Roman military term signifying about 5,000 military men. So we understand not only are there thousands of demons, but like Roman soldiers, they rule with a brutish, iron-fisted force. And yet, in verse 31, we find them begging in abject fear at the feet of Jesus. So what are we to make of this fear? Proverbs 3.7 says this, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. However, the fear we see here is not the type that turns away from evil. Yes, they absolutely cower at Christ's authority, but it only drives them to spiteful rebellion. In verses 32 and 33, we see the effect of their fear. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. The demons begged to enter the pigs and then promptly drowned them in the sea. So we discover that while the demons fear Christ and they are compelled to submit to his authority, they do so with a fear of spiteful rebellion, a fear of spiteful rebellion. They drown the pigs because they can, because they enjoy death because it harms the townspeople that own the pigs, and most importantly, because it stirs up the townspeople against Jesus. This is the type of fear that submits, but is painfully, spitefully antagonistic every step of the way. You've seen this attitude before. It's like the defiant teenager who follows the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. You said I had to take out the trash. You never said I had to put the new trash bag in. (laughs) Or it's like the malicious compliance of paying that $50 parking ticket in pennies. In a similar way, the demons are forced to submit to Christ's authority, but they sure don't like it, and they're going to make it as difficult as possible every step of the way. Now, to better understand the nature of this rebellious fear, let's think for a moment about what we can learn from this bizarre event. Why did Jesus even allow them to enter the pigs in the first place? Well, let me suggest three reasons for that. First, it demonstrates that real spiritual forces are at play here. Jesus didn't merely heal a mental disorder. Healing a man's mental disorder doesn't cause pigs to commit suicide. We see a crazy man, 
Jesus points from crazy man to pigs. Crazy man is better. Pigs go crazy. There's a spiritual transfer happening there. The demonic forces are very real and very evil. And secondly, by allowing the demons to enter the pigs, it validates the quantity, the many thousands of demons. In a parallel, in the parallel passage in Mark 4, we learn there were about 2,000 pigs. So not just one pig, not just two pigs, but all 2,000 of those pigs go against their instinct and kill themselves in the sea. So yes, there was a huge quantity of demons involved here. And thirdly, it hammers home that demons, and by extension for us, sin, never has our good in mind. It always seeks out your destruction. Ephesians 6.12 reminds us of this when it says that when we battle sin, we are not merely, quote, wrestling against flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil. Sure, we may not personally face demon possession, but a world of evil does lie behind our sin. And that sin always intends to possess you and drive you to annihilation. It imprisons you, eats away your humanity, and leaves you alone and destitute like that man. It never brings joy or blessing. So these demons fear God, but it's the flavor of fear that leads to spiteful rebellion. It bows the head and acknowledges, yes, you're God, but I hate you for it. It's the fear that leads to spiteful rebellion. Having dissected this type of fear, we have to ask ourselves, does this describe my own heart to some degree? Some people, like the demons, fear God's authority, but it only drives them to hate God. We've, we've known some people like that, and some of us used to be those people. But having been saved out of that, perhaps we still find at times a dark corner of our own heart occasionally sliding back into such an attitude. When hard, difficult providences overtake you, when you dislike that shadowy valley that God is leading you through, is there a portion of your own heart wanting to scream out against God in insubordination? When a loved one's sickness drags on, when the job relentlessly grinds you down, or when close friends disappoint, or maybe when life just seems painfully monotonous, are you inclined to blame God for it? Have you ever felt that God treated you woefully unfair and you went a couple days without praying in retaliation? I'm ashamed to admit that I have. As the receding tide of good times fades away, does it expose the lingering remnants of your old godless heart? As we continue in our tale of three fears, the second type of fear becomes apparent in the next section, in verses 34 to 37, and that's among the townspeople. Starting at verse 34, When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with a great fear. 
So he got into the boat and returned. So we notice their fear several times there. In verse 34, seeing what happened, they fled. In verse 35, they saw the man in his right mind and they were afraid. And in verse 37, they were seized with a great fear. But this is a different kind of fear. While the demon's fear led them to spiteful rebellion, the townspeople's fear causes them to dread exposure. And that is our second type of response to Christ's authority, a fear that dreads being exposed. It's the kind of fear where deep down you know you ought to act, but instead you choose to stick your head in the sand. It's like when you know a doctor's visit's needed, but you really don't want to know what's wrong, so you keep putting it off. We find unbelieving Peter with a similar attitude when he encounters Jesus in Luke 5, verse 8, where he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. When sinful hearts encounter the purity and authority of Christ, our natural instinct is to create distance, to separate, to dread what we can't understand. And that's exactly what we find in John three nineteen and 20. It says, Light has come into the world, but everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Natural man dreads being exposed. Now, the townspeople are at first attracted to the spectacle. And, I mean, put yourself in their shoes. If your local demon-possessed maniac is suddenly made well, wouldn't you be kind of curious how it happened? And we could add, this is the same maniac that you failed to restrain with your chains and shackles. Or, at the very least, wouldn't the novelty of 2,000 recently deceased pigs floating off into the sunset arouse your curiosity? But mere curiosity is unwilling to make room for vulnerability. As soon as the herdsmen describe how Christ healed the man, they have no time for Jesus. Chains of iron and shackles of bronze? Yeah, they understand that. But what they do not understand is how a heart of stone is transformed into a heart of flesh. This is not just a bigger quantity of power. This is a higher quality of power. This is a different kind of authority that is not of this world. It is transcendent power encapsulated in a man. It is a God-man. It is the God-man, Jesus Christ. But as the herdsmen describe the power of Jesus... The crowd is transformed from gawking spectators into terrified residents. They could calm their hearts by seeking peace with God. But oh no, they have a different solution in mind. In verse 37, they ask Jesus to leave and never come back. They choose to stick their heads in the sand. They don't want the doctor's diagnosis. They accept the gift but reject the giver. Like the Jews railing against Jesus before Pontius Pilate, they cry out, Away with him! Away with him! We will not have this man rule over us. Sometimes, like the Israelites in the desert, our hearts would rather go back to destitute slavery in Egypt than brave the unknowns of the desert through faith. And, like that faithless generation who would rather sit in the wilderness than enter the promised land, the terrifying truth is that sometimes Jesus grants your request. You want to sit in the desert instead of entering the promised land? Fine. You'll stay there until you die and the next generation will go in. And here also in our story, Jesus complies with their tragic demand. If you are not trusting Christ, but keep nudging him away, pushing him off, 
Be aware that at some point he may take your request to leave seriously. Turn to Christ while he is near, because in the future you might find that your heart has hardened and you are unable to come. Previously the demons had imprisoned the man, now fear imprisons the townspeople. All too often, we can find our hearts inclined towards that townsperson fear. A fear of exposure that wants to keep Jesus at a safe distance. Can you recall times where you saw God working in your heart, but chose to harden your heart rather than perhaps do something uncomfortable? Or perhaps does your heart secretly cherish a sin, maybe gossip or lust or worry, and you would prefer to push Jesus away and enjoy its fleeting delights for just a few moments longer. Let this passage be a warning for us. When you keep Christ at arm's length, that fear imprisons you and cuts you off from the source of life. In our passage, both the townspeople and the demons ultimately end up far away from God. One through spite, one through indifference. But spiritually speaking, in the end, they share the same fate. To be clear, when God adopts you into his family, your sonship is irrevocable. You're never lost. But if your heart is constantly nudging Jesus away because he exposes your sin, it may very well ironically expose you as never having been his child in the first place. Far better to let Jesus expose your sin now than be exposed on judgment day when he says to you, depart from me, I never knew you. You'll be exposed one way or the other, so take your pick. If you find that describes a piece of your heart, repent and draw near to our Savior. And remember these reassuring words from Psalm 103, 10 and 11. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As our tale of three fears winds down to a close, we discover the third type of fear in verses 38 to 39. And and this is a fear that leads to love and obedience. A fear that leads to love and obedience. The text says, verse 38, The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This man has been transformed by Christ. New life breathed into a lifeless, a lifeless, (laughs) new life breathed into a lifeless soul. Now, while it's not explicitly stated in the text, there is no doubt he fears God. Not the spiteful rebellion or the dread of being exposed, but the healthy, righteous fear of God that leads to life. Consider these words from Isaiah 33, 6. He, the Lord, will be the sure foundation for your times, a storehouse of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Yes, the fear of the Lord is indeed the treasure of every faithful believer. There's no doubt this man fears the Lord. So what does this fear look like? Well, when we dissect it, It's the Christ-honoring reverence that flows like a cascading fountain into the pools of love and obedience. 
first love, because unless our affections are properly placed, our obedience can never be complete. And there is no doubt affection is gushing out of this man. After all, he's literally begging to never leave Jesus' side. It's like when you have to leave your newlywed spouse on a short trip, and you have to tear yourself away from their side. The proper fear of God leaves leaves your heart desiring to be in his presence. And secondly, not only does the tree of righteous fear blossom into love, it also produces the fruit of obedience. Jesus reminds us of this truth in John 14, 15, saying, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Properly ordered affections always blossom into obedience. And this explains why Jesus does not comply with this man's request. If we've been reading our story carefully, this should strike us as a little bit odd. After all, he complies with every other request. (laughs) The nasty demons ask to enter the pigs, and he says, sure. The townspeople, the sinful townspeople ask him to leave, and he says, okay. But when the saved man affectionately asks to stay by Jesus' side forever, he says no. But this demonstrates again, the proper fear of God demands not just affection, but obedience. To stay basking in the warmth of Jesus is not a bad desire, but it is an incomplete one. Reveling in the goodness of God isn't wrong, but if it's not blossoming into love, if it's, but if the love fails to bloom into obedience, it's deficient. Jesus wants not mere lover, lovers, but obedient disciples. And so Jesus commands the man to go and proclaim the magnificent work he has produced in the man's life. Verse 39, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. King Jesus may have obliged the townspeople's request to leave their country, but he's still going to send an ambassador. He's not done with them quite yet. Previously, the townspeople tried to solve this man's problem with physical restraining. Jesus solves his problem with spiritual releasing. Spiritual bondage was this man's problem. Spiritual bondage was the townspeople's problem. And when your problem is bondage to sin, a slave to sin, there is no one better suited to help than Jesus. Jesus, the Son, says this in John 8, 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But, he goes on to say this in verse 36. But if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus set that man free. He wrecked that legion of demons, and now he wants everyone to know about it. Are you a slave to sin? Jesus can set you free as well. Come to him. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge your helplessness. Acknowledge he is the only one with supreme power over nature, the spiritual realm, and your very life itself. Believe him. Turn away from your sin, and he will set you free to live the good life of sincere love and joyful obedience. So the man faithfully spreads that message obediently and promptly. He truly fears God. In a glorious contrast, the man who was previously possessed with demons is now a man possessed with zeal for God. 
When we consider this healed man, hold him up as a mirror to yourself and see if the resemblance matches. Do your present affections and actions reflect his same love? First, what about your love? Like the healed man, do our hearts long to sit basking at the feet of Jesus in the warmth of his grace? Or does your heart long to sit at the feet of news commentators, Pinterest, or TikTok? You can only have one master. Our hearts can be possessed by the cares of this world or be possessed with love for Christ, but not both. Has your heart grown cold from an empty, from an endless stream of busyness? Secondly, perhaps our hearts do enjoy basking in Christ, but are we reluctant to obey his command to go out and proclaim it? Notice how quick the man was to go and share his story. Are we that quick to go and share our story of what Christ has done for us? Are we willing to humbly swallow our pride and share the dark valleys that God has saved us from in order that the glistening mountaintops of his work might be exalted? Or perhaps, even though we like to say we believe Jesus is supreme over everything, do we still, do we still look at all the sin and all the chaos and think, it's beyond hope. Sharing my faith is pointless in this culture. Have we forgotten the healed man? Have we forgotten our Lord's words in Matthew 28? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now therefore, go and make disciples. Let us truly believe those words. Let those words give us backbone. Let us be encouraged that if Christ can overpower a legion of raging demons in order to save a single man, that no one is outside of God's saving reach. Keep sharing your faith. After all, Jesus said in Matthew 16, he would build his church and the very gates of hell itself would not prevail against it. Cling to those promises and let them drive you to deeper love and greater obedience. As we survey the terrain we've just traveled, we've discovered that while there may be different types of fear, everyone will fear. For the disciples about to be sent out on their, on their uh, journey to proclaim the gospel as sheep among wolves, this is a reminder to them that while waging this spiritual war, our Lord has spiritual supremacy. It also demonstrates tragic responses we will encounter. Spiteful rejection, like the demons, or a townsperson fear of being exposed, like the, like the townspeople. But... It also reminds us that the saving arm of Christ will accomplish its work and save those from the darkest of dungeons, like that man. Our story began with the demons begging to escape the grip of Jesus. And now our tale ends with the man begging to never be pulled from the grip of Jesus. It's the tale of the best of times for some and the worst of times for others. An epoch of incredulity and belief, of darkness and light. A tale of three fears. Let our fear be like that man, driving us to love and obedience. Don't merely fear Christ. Love and obey him. Let's pray. Father, your word is a double-edged sword. Father, we ask that that sword would pierce into our own hearts, slashing away at everything that suppresses our love for you. Give us strength to be obedient and to then wield that sword to free others as well. 
and when we reach our final battle and we see our righteous king, may we respond, I am but a humble servant, merely doing what was my duty. We pray this in Jesus' name, who is the word. Amen.